Hi, I'm Lewis and welcome to Searching for It. Before we begin today, just a bit of a public service announcement. Since beginning the podcast, I've really enjoyed being able to pump out an episode every two weeks. But as those of you who have listened to the previous episodes may know, the process of creating each episode is a very research-heavy and time-consuming process. And with that in mind, and balancing the podcast alongside a full-time job, I'm unfortunately going to have to scale the podcast back to one episode a month. It's already reaching a stage where I'm finding it difficult to meet the two-week schedule. And all things considered, I'd much rather be able to focus on making sure that each episode is of a high quality, rather than rushing through them and pumping out as many episodes as I can. So moving forward, you can expect each new episode to drop on the first Monday of every month. And there might well be a bonus episode thrown in here and there when I'm moving particularly quickly, but I'd much rather be able to do that than end up missing a schedule. And hopefully down the line, once I've become more efficient, I might be able to bring this back to something like an episode every two weeks again. And on that note, as I've mentioned, a lot of work does go into creating this podcast. So for those of you who'd like to support the show and help keep it running, I've set up a page on Patreon. For those of you who don't know about Patreon, it's basically a site where those who enjoy a show can pledge a certain amount of money each episode to help keep the podcast going. So there are a few different tiers or levels at which you can donate, the lowest being $1 an episode or $1 a month, whereas when you move up the tiers there are some goodies to be had, like receiving a shout out on the next episode or a searching for it t-shirt. Pledging to the show would really help me to spend more time and resources on the show and ultimately be able to release more and more episodes of a higher and higher quality. So for those of you who are interested, you can find the page on www.patreon.com forward slash searching for it. But that's enough on that, for now, on with today's episode. Back when I was in university, some of my housemates and I went through a phase where we were really into this computer game, Civilization V. The basic gist of the game is that you begin as a real-life world leader in 4000 BC, whether it's Napoleon, Gandhi or Genghis Khan, and you build your empire up to achieve world domination. Yeah, it was a pretty nerdy game. There are a few ways you could achieve world domination. I mean, sure, you can win a military victory and take over the rest of the countries by force. But you could also win a religious victory by spreading your religion across the globe. Or you could win a cultural victory by doing the same thing with your country's culture. In real life, nobody's won a military victory quite yet, although the British Empire had made a pretty good stab at it and nor has any country achieved a religious victory. But when I was playing the game, I thought there's a pretty strong case for the USA having won a cultural victory. Everyone all around the world watches Hollywood films, listens to American music, everyone knows Leonardo DiCaprio and Beyonce. American culture permeates everywhere. I mean, even genes are an American invention. If it's big in America, you'll know about it wherever you are. But there's at least one pretty surprising exemption from this rule, and they're going to be the subject of today's episode and their name is the Grateful Dead. If you're not from the States, you might not know too much about the dead, and there's even a chance you might not have heard of them at all. But to give some kind of an indication of just how big they were and how much of a legacy they left behind, we're talking about a band who score 57th on the Rolling Stones list of the greatest artists of all time. They've had 12 of their members, they had a few come and go, indicted onto the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And they literally used to hold a Guinness World Record for the most amount of rock concerts performed. So they were obviously a successful bunch, but it's a strange story with the Grateful Dead, because despite all of their success, as I said, they never gained much recognition beyond America. And one thing they never managed to achieve was a single number one hit, not even in America. They only even had one song that even hit the US Billboard Top 40. And as a point of comparison, 
Robin Thicke's Blurred Lines spent 12 weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Yep, that happened. Don't get me wrong, they were huge in the States. The likes of Bill Clinton, Will Arnett and Steve Jobs are all self-professed deadheads, which is the term given to the followers of the Grateful Dead. In fact, on the note of Steve Jobs, there's a really interesting article on the Grateful Dead on Wired.com, which I'd recommend to anyone interested, about how deadheads in their army of LSD practically invented Silicon Valley. But despite their influence, as I said, this never really translated into mainstream success, and certainly never gave them any considerable success outside of America. I actually bought a Grateful Dead t-shirt quite a long time ago, sadly lost in Budapest, and for years not a single person commented on it in the UK, not even at music festivals. It wasn't until I had a 12-hour stopover on a flight in the States that it finally got noticed. Literally almost the second I stepped into Miami airport, a security lady said, nice t-shirt, and I thought, finally. Why the Grateful Dead failed to gain much of a following outside of the States, I'm not quite sure. But it's easier to explain why the Dead never managed to make any kind of a splash in the charts, despite their huge following. Now, I'm finding it difficult to find the words to explain why the Grateful Dead never saw mainstream success without sounding like a pretentious smartass. But, simply put, they're not easy listening. Their songs weren't designed to be catchy sing-along songs on the radio for teenagers to listen to on repeat for a week and then forget about them. I mean, don't get me wrong, you can absently mind to listen to their music and they sound nice, but they sound just nice. If you don't really pay any attention, they won't sound like anything special. The kind of music the dead make is the kind of music that you really need to pay attention to in order to see what's going on, and to understand the deeper meaning behind it. And yeah, I said, I'm trying not to sound like a pretentious smartass here. And the meaning behind the music of the Grateful Dead, its purpose, is a very different purpose than the purpose of mass-produced radio pop. And it's this purpose we're going to be looking at in today's episode. But for those listeners who find this a bit of a strange episode choice, there's a good reason for this, and that's that the purpose of the Grateful Dead, or at least one of the main qualities of the Grateful Dead, has a lot to do with the very focus of this whole podcast. For a lot of their fans, the Grateful Dead's music can facilitate this feeling of transcendence and puts us into contact with it. We'll come on to how all that works in just a bit, but first for a bit of background, just who were this Grateful Dead? So first of all, to place them in their historical context, the Grateful Dead were part of and arguably defined the 1960s counterculture music scene in San Francisco. It was round about this time you saw the likes of Jefferson Airplane, Santana spring up in San Francisco as well, while you also had the Doors coming out of LA, and the likes of Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles rising up round about the same time in the UK, but very much part of the same music scene. They came from a scene that was musically loose, it was experimental, and very much based upon improvisation. And more than anything else, the music of the Grateful Dead and their contemporaries was what you'd call psychedelic. We'll come on to explain in more detail what it means to describe the Grateful Dead as psychedelic, but as I'm sure a lot of you will already know, The word psychedelic is also used to refer to a class of drugs. These kind of drugs went hand in hand with the Dead's music, and in actual fact it was while their singer Jerry Garcia was smoking DMT that he came up with their name, The Grateful Dead. So apparently the story goes, the intention was that their name refers to the soul of a dead person expressing their gratitude to someone who arranged their funeral, someone who is gratefully dead. And yes, this probably sounded much more profound when they were on DMT. Although a lot of deadheads would want to make clear that you don't need any kind of drugs to get into the Grateful Dead, you can absolutely appreciate them sober. Nevertheless, 
you can't deny they really were tied extremely closely with the drug culture at the time. Springing up in 60s San Francisco, the Grateful Dead began in the exact time and place of the whole counterculture hippie generation while they were all experimenting with LSD. And of course, they played at the legendary and generation-defining festival at Woodstock in 69. And it wasn't just a drug fueled scene in which they operated. The Grateful Dead were themselves associated with some of the biggest names in the drug world of the 60s. I mean, take Owsley Stanley, for example. For those of you who haven't heard of Stanley, his big claim to fame was that he was the world's biggest producer of LSD in the 1960s. He produced an estimated 5 million doses of acid between 65 and 67. Owsley acid was literally the standard for LSD at the time. Researching for this episode, I read that even the Beatles were on Owsley Acid while they were filming their magical mystery tour film. And not only this, but Owsley was hugely involved with the Grateful Dead. He was their big financial backer, buying them their sound equipment, renting them a house. He designed their trademark Skull logo, and he was even their sound guy and was responsible for developing their wall of sound system, which was the world's largest concert sound system at the time. And, of course, as a band from 1960s San Francisco with strong ties to LSD manufacturers, it'll come as no surprise that, as I mentioned earlier, the Grateful Dead were first and foremost a psychedelic band. Now, this is a really vague term. You can listen to some of their songs and you'll hear rock and roll. In some, you'll hear folk, blues, you might even hear some reggae. But under the surface, each one of their songs is essentially psychedelic. You might listen to the Grateful Dead and have no idea what I mean here. Because their music can be so varied that it can be really tricky to pinpoint this psychedelic common denominator. So to shine a bit of light on what I mean here by psychedelic, there's a really good quote from Timothy Leary who explains this really well. So Timothy Leary was the Harvard researcher who got fired along with Richard Alpert in 1963 for his apparently unethical experiments with LSD at Harvard. And for those of you well versed in the psychedelic subculture, if you've ever heard the phrases set and setting, to refer to the need to be in a positive headspace and environment to get the most out of your psychedelic drug trip. Or the phrase, turn on, tune in, drop out, to refer to using psychedelic drugs to understand their lessons, and then to stop taking the drugs before you begin abusing them. Both of these quotes came from Leary himself. He was a really big figure in this whole psychedelic counterculture revolution of the 60s. And on the psychedelic experience, he wrote... A psychedelic experience is a journey to new realms of consciousness. The scope and the content of the experience is limitless, but its characteristic features are the transcendence of verbal concepts, of space-time dimensions, and of the ego or identity. For those who haven't had a psychedelic experience, the way in which people describe psychedelic experiences can sound really strange and difficult to comprehend. But I think that's because, while language is developed to accurately depict day-to-day -day experiences, psychedelic experiences are so far removed from our day-to-day -day life that there really are no words for them. I've heard that same thing said about religious experiences too. So those who have had a religious experience, maybe they've seen God, they often struggle to put their experiences into plain English because there is simply no way of describing those experiences using our day-to-day -day words. But to unpack the psychedelic experience as best we can, I think one of the most important phrases to take here from Leary is how he describes the psychedelic experience as a journey to new realms of consciousness. In our day-to-day -day lives, we experience the world in a certain way, but when we undergo a psychedelic experience, the framework through which we experience the world and ourselves is altered. I mean, if you take a stimulant drug like speed or caffeine even, 
They give you energy and you might feel kind of jittery, but your consciousness doesn't really change. And you can contrast this with depressant drugs like alcohol, which slow you down and inhibit the control over your mind and body. But psychedelic drugs work in a different kind of way. They're a completely different kettle of fish. You still feel more or less the same, and you still have full control over yourself, but you just experience the world and your place in the world in a radically different way. So for example, a couple of common effects of a psychedelic experience are that you might feel a real unity and oneness between yourselves and those around you, and you might see the world with a deep and profound sense of beauty. And to relate this back to the Grateful Dead, there's a quote from Mickey Hart, the drummer from the Grateful Dead, who described his band as follows. The transformative power of the Grateful Dead is really the essence of it. It's what it can do to your consciousness. We're more into transportation than we are into music, per se. I mean, the business of the Grateful Dead is transportation. I absolutely love Mickey Hart's quote here, because it's so strikingly similar to the way in which Timothy Leary described the psychedelic experience. While Leary described the psychedelic experience as a journey to new realms of consciousness, Hart there equally speaks to the Grateful Dead having a transformative power and being in the business of transportation. And in fact, for those of you who listened to the third episode, Off the Road, you might remember that the philosopher Alan Watts described Zen Buddhism with the exact same kind of terminology as, again, a transformation of consciousness and of the way in which we experience our own existence. And this transformation of consciousness that the Grateful Dead give is a really rare gift. While artists like, let's say, Ed Sheeran, while they might play catchy songs, and don't get me wrong, I love Ed Sheeran, I passed up on a load of top bands at Glastonbury to see him headline the pyramid stage, but Ed Sheeran, like most pop or chart artists, doesn't really transport you beyond yourself. Listening to his song Castle on the Hill, it might be a pleasant experience. You might even go so far as to say that the nostalgia of the song takes you back to your teenage years. But there's something much bigger going on with The Grateful Dead, in that where they take you is to an entirely new mode of consciousness, a new way of experiencing the world. While I want to be mindful of avoiding death by quotations, there's one final passage I want to share on the psychedelic experience, from a New York Times article in 1973, which writes, The dead had learned how to conceive and perform a music, which often induced something closely akin to this psychedelic experience. They were experts in the art and science of showing people another world, or a temporary altering or raising of world consciousness. It sounds pseudo-mystical, pretentious perhaps, but the fact is that it happens, and it's intentional. So the author of the article here has clearly grasped the jargon pumped out by Leary and Hart. He gets that what's going on is the transportation of the listener to a new world, to a new plane of consciousness. But as the author writes... I am wary that this all might sound, as he says, pseudo-mystical. It might all sound pretty airy-fairy. I mean, the idea of listening to a song and being transported to a whole new dimension might sound like it's either come from science fiction, or just a gross exaggeration. But I really think that's what makes The Grateful Dead such a special band. As I say, not all bands possess this transformative power, and the fact that The Dead could do so explains why they're still remembered over 50 years after they first formed. A lot of people speak of the Grateful Dead as having an X-factor, and no, this is nothing to do with the TV show. What this means is that the Grateful Dead had this quality that nobody else really had, that made them not better than anyone else, but just completely different. They were on a completely different scale. As the 1960s club promoter Bill Graham famously said, 
They're not the best at what they do. They're the only ones that do what they do. So to look at just what it was that they did that made the Grateful Dead so special, it wasn't just by magic that they induced a psychedelic experience in their listeners. I think a lot of the Grateful Dead's quality is found in the original way in which they played their instruments. Unlike almost all rock bands nowadays, at least those that you'll hear in the charts, the Grateful Dead were known for their improvisation. If you went to a dead gig, for example, and even if you knew the set list in advance, you'd still have no idea quite how their music was going to sound, because they played their songs differently every time, and you'll never find two Grateful Dead concerts that sounded the same. And it wasn't just the songs that they played differently, they'd also jam between songs. The interlude between two songs could last upwards of 10 minutes and form a new piece of music in itself. But the point here is that this wasn't just mindless jamming. What gave them their magic was the way in which they improvised and experimented together, and built upon each other's riffs. Phil Lesh, the bassist, he described the way they'd play as personalising their own individual performance, to fit within everyone else, such that they melded into this group mind, as if together they became the five fingers on a hand and formed a group consciousness. And it was when they managed to do this, when they managed to get on that level, that we saw the transcendence that people speak of with the Grateful Dead. Each member of the band transcended their own individual selves to play on the level of the group, and their music was elevated to some kind of higher realm that induced this psychedelic experience in the listeners. But while the Grateful Dead had this quality, let's be clear, nobody's saying that they'd stumbled across some secret ancient formula that gave some magical quality to their music. Being able to play on this level requires real technical skill, and even more, requires real hard work. As the singer Jerry Garcia once pointed out, you can't play the way the Grateful Dead plays without working at it. It's not something that just happened to us. And even when they did work at it, it didn't always work out. You can listen to loads of Grateful Dead gigs online at archive.org, and sometimes there'd be songs, sections of gigs, and almost whole concerts themselves where the dead just weren't at it, they weren't on form, and they didn't quite achieve this X factor. But when they got it, you really got it, and it was something else. I did mention earlier, though, that while this psychedelic experience is closely tied to the effects of taking psychedelic drugs like LSD, and for sure it's under the influence of these kind of drugs that you can more easily get what the Grateful Dead are trying to achieve, but it's important to stress that this kind of drug use isn't necessary for having a psychedelic experience listening to the Grateful Dead. When you take a drug like LSD, it'll open up your mind to these new modes of consciousness, and it'll open the door to allow you to appreciate their music on this psychedelic level. But with the right kind of openness and attitude, this state can definitely be reached without the help of any kind of drugs. I think a good way of putting it is that psychedelic drugs can be a means to the psychedelic experience, but they're not a necessary means. You can get there without the drugs. In the right context, the Grateful Dead's music alone can be enough to induce this psychedelic experience. And people also talk about having similar kinds of experiences from meditation, and from deeply appreciating other kinds of art as well. And on that note, I think it's worth taking a small step back and being maybe a bit modest about the Grateful Dead. They're not the only band or the only thing that can induce a psychedelic experience. And in fact, I know that a lot of people, including real music nerds, and even lovers of 1960s music in particular, will listen to the Grateful Dead and not quite get it. And saying they don't quite get it is no slight on the listener themselves, it's not necessarily the case that there's something they're not seeing. The Grateful Dead's music just isn't for everyone. And while a lot of people will argue that the Grateful Dead were the best at what they did, and even that they were the only ones who did what they did how they did it, they were by no means the only band who set out to transport the listener 
to elevate them to a new mode of consciousness, to this higher state. They certainly were one of the first to do it in their way, but the legacy they left behind is basically the whole institution of psychedelic rock. Even in the 1960s too, artists like Jimi Hendrix and the Beatles were trying to do the same thing. People often listen to Hey Jude and forget that a lot of the Beatles stuff was seriously trippy. And coming after them, you've got the likes of Pink Floyd coming slightly afterwards, and bands like Tame Impala, The Flaming Lips, and King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard taking psychedelic rock off in different directions today. And even beyond psychedelic rock, electronic music genres today like Psytrance and Acid House are essentially picking up the project from the 1960s to continue experimenting with the different psychological states and modes of consciousness that we can reach listening to music. It's not quite the same as the dead, but the sense of euphoria and oneness and moving beyond yourself that you might feel at an acid house rave, maybe but not necessarily with the help of drugs like MDMA, is part of the same category of music that the Grateful Dead helped to carve out and define. But just as with the thoughts of Jack Kerouac that we explored in episodes 2 and 3 of this podcast, there might be a limit to the extent to which we can pinpoint the psychedelic experience, and the way that psychedelic music allows us to achieve this kind of experience in normal words. As we saw earlier, a lot of the best descriptions of the psychedelic experience describe it as some kind of journey or transformation to a higher realm of consciousness. But for those of us who haven't had such an experience, it's really hard to grasp what this kind of experience is meant to look like. We simply have no frame of reference. And it's just as hard to explain to someone else what this experience is supposed to look like, as we who've had a psychedelic experience, again, simply have no words in which to describe it. And even if we did... Those who haven't had the experience wouldn't know what those words were really referring to. It's like trying to describe what the colour green looks like to a blind person. But I'm hoping that at the very least, this episode today will have offered some kind of insight into what it is we mean when we talk about having a psychedelic experience, and how certain kinds of music can help us to get there. In the next episode, which will be released on the first Monday of July, which will be in three weeks' time, we're going to continue this theme and look a bit more into what really happens when we have a psychedelic experience, and whether there's any truth to be found there. We'll approach this next episode through the lens of the famous acid tests in the 1960s, which will hopefully bring together and wrap up the thoughts that we've had in the last few episodes from the beats in the 1950s and the counterculture movement in the 60s too. And until then, and as ever, if you enjoyed the show today, please do subscribe, and if possible, leave a rating and a review. I'll see you then. Thank you.